Assalamualaikum. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Islam Living History Program. My name is Dr. Muhammad Iqbal and I'll be your host for this program. The Living History team are embarking on a seven-part series on the history of money and trade. Now, most people in this day and age will associate money with a piece of paper called the US dollar. And of course, it used to be the pound uh, before that, the British pound. Uh, or associated coins with these and so on. All nations have some sort of paper money and associated coins which we use to buy things. But how did we attach a value to these pieces of paper? How did money come into the lives of human beings? What role did money play in the rise and fall of nations and empires? These are some of the questions that we will try to answer in this series of programs. Throughout the ages, many empires have risen and fallen, and some of these have been covered in the Living History programs. One of the greatest empires in the world was the Roman Empire, which stretched from Europe to North Africa and much of the Middle East. From small beginnings, this empire grew to an enormous size based on a belief that the gods or God gave the conquerors the right to over dominion over others and the ability to finance and manage such a large empire. Whilst nation builders and great emperors concentrated on gaining more territory, great religious figures like Jesus of Nazareth were more interested in winning hearts and souls for the sake of God and a better afterlife. This deep belief led Jesus to advise his fellow Jews, and I quote from Mark um, chapter 12, verse 17, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus believed that the Romans were much more interested in money and collection of taxes from their subjects, including the Jews, and it was important that the Jews or Israelites should focus on winning the pleasure of Allah Almighty. For Jesus, religion and the need for spiritual development was more important than wealth, power and nationhood. Now in the modern world, there is a common saying, especially in the West, that money makes the world go round. The phrase basically means that everything in this world would stop without money. And to some extent, this statement is true. Without money, you cannot afford a shelter on your head, buy the food to survive, or go from point A to point B, etc. In part one of this series, entitled Genesis of Cows and Crops to Coin Trade, we are going to look at the origins of early trade and money. In part two, entitled The Rise of the Great Eurasian Empires, we are going to look at the way gold and silver took center stage in trade and conquest that shaped many of the large and influential empires, from the Achaemenid Empire of Cyrus the Great to the Athenian and the Greek Empire established by Alexander the Great, all the way to the Roman Empire. We will also look at the crucial developments that took place across India, especially the rise of the Great Mauryan Empire and the unification of China under Qinchi, Hungdai, and Rise of the Han Dynasty. In part three of this series, entitled Worlds of Conquerors, Prophets, and Reformers, we will look at the role religion played in shaping trade between nations and empires and the relationship between them. In particular, 
we will look at the interaction between the Romans and the Jewish people leading to the rise of one of the great religions and that was Christianity. How did people deal with loyalty to God and loyalty to the emperor? We will also look at the impact of Islam on the world and what difference it made to the relationship between the ruler and the rule. And in part four of this series entitled Islam, a bridge between East and West, we will look at how the Muslims during the golden age of Islam picked up new ideas from India, China and the Greeks and how they refined many of these and passed them on to Europe. And following the fragmentation of the Abbasid Empire, the Muslim world split into the Ottoman, Safavid and the Mughal empires which we have covered in Living History before. And these empires acted as the bridges between the East and the West. During the Mughal rule of Aurangzeb, for example, India became the biggest economy of the world, overtaking China, which had dominated most of the global economy throughout history. We will also look at how China became the most powerful land and sea power during the Yuan and Ming dynasties. And then in part five, we will look at the making of the European world. And in part six, we will look at the clash between capitalism and communism coming up to fairly well the modern world. And then finally, in part seven, we will look at the making of a new world. And we will provide a summary description of these programs as we move on. So in part one, which is today's program of the series entitled Genesis, Cows and Crops to Coin Trade, we are going to look at the origins of early trade in money, and I'm joined by my panelist, Professor Amir Sharif from the University of Bradford. Amir, welcome. And also by Yusuf Aftab, who is our regular panelist as well, to explore this fascinating subject. So Yusuf, just take us through a little bit of what we mean by money and its early origins and th- thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we probably don't see it in the same way, shape or form as it coexisted before from human history. So we'll we'll look at the development of the trade and invention of money, how it took place from the beginning of written history, and consequently, any story we are trying to tell here of how money first developed is mostly based on conjecture and logical inference. So even in our modern world, there are remote tribes that have a lifestyle that was seen many thousand years ago, and the trade goods which they either hunt or grow locally As recent as the 17th and early 18th centuries, American colonists used beaver pelts and dried corn in transactions. In Canada, where the Hudson's Bay Company and other fur trading companies controlled most of the country, fur traders quickly realised that gold and silver were of no interest to the First Nations, the native Indians of North America. They wanted goods such as metal knives and axes or consumable goods. The fur traders established the beaver pelt as the standard currency and created a price list for goods. For example, five pounds of sugar cost one beaver pelt, two scissors cost one beaver pelt, 20 fish hooks cost one beaver pelt and a pair of shoes would cost one beaver pelt. A gun would be 12 beaver pelts. Other animal furs were convertible into beaver pelts at a standard rate as well. So this created a viable currency in an economy where precious metals and other forms of money were not valued. These commodities were used for trade, just as they had been thousands of years ago, and the term commodity money came to define them. These commodities were widely desired and therefore valuable, but they were also durable, portable and easily stored. 
These are the essential qualities for something to be used as money. So this gives an idea of how even in the recent past with the native Indians, you know, how, how trade developed and how value systems were developed as well. But starting our journey, I suppose, from the beginning, the journey of modern man or homo sapiens has been a long one, as we have seen in many of the programs covered by the Living History programs. Tribes of homo sapiens spent thousands of years as hunter-gatherers, and a stage came when many made a transition to sedentary life. The Neolithic Age, or the New Stone Age that we talk about, which is about 10,000 BCE to 3000 BCE, saw a major breakthrough in human development with the introduction of crop cultivation and animal husbandry. As foraging gave way to farming, nomadism gave way to sedentary life in villages. The range of human interaction widened from the clan or tribe to the village and to the policy and trade between villages. Five early river-based agricultural regions made fundamental and lasting contributions to the introduction of new technologies and the development of institutions, culture and governance for all of humanity. And these were Mesopotamia, around the Iraq area, as we've talked in previous programs, ancient Egypt, the Indus Valley, the Yellow River in China, um, and the Yangtze River Valley in, in China as well. On the basis of these productive soils, along with the other advantages of the riverine location in terms of transport, irrigation and defence, the world's first city-states and then empires developed at these sites. So from around um, 11,500 years ago, the eight Neolithic founder crops, emmer and corn, wheat, uh, hulled barley, peas, lentils, uh, bitter vetch, chickpeas and flax were cultivated in the Levant. That's around Syria, Lebanon, all that sort of area. Again, the Fertile Crescent area, as we call it. Rice was domesticated in China between 11,500 and 6,200 BC, with the earliest known cultivations from 5,700 BC, followed by mung, soy and azuki beans, and in the Andes of South America, the potato was domesticated between 10,000 and 7,000 years ago, along with beans and cocoa. In Mesoamerica, which is sort of the Latin American, Southern American area we refer to, maize was domesticated 6,000 years ago. So, I mean, you can see how the crops and the husbandry, but then again, take us through the major landmass, Eurasia, because that was the major contributor to it. So, so as you mentioned there, Dr. Saab, the, the worldwide sort of beginnings of trade and the concept of, of money, as Yusuf Saab also mentioned as well, started. And let's now let's turn to Eurasia uh, being a bit more closer to, to home, if you like. So Eurasia is a continuous land area, has been home to most of humanity and has enjoyed, long enjoyed the benefits of scale, distant, long distance trade, innovation and diffusion of technologies. So within that, the Sumerians represented the earliest group to have settled into villages and rapidly growing communities, forming early towns and cities from about 8,000 BC, relying on the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in Iraq, present-day Iraq, as we know, and a canal system for irrigation. Again, as mentioned, these various river basins and uh, geographical areas as well. And around these areas, farmers grew wheat, barley, vegetables such as lentils and onions, and fruits including dates, grapes and figs, all based upon incredibly fertile 
land. And so as the combination of numbers of people living together in these large city-states grew, more sophisticated accounting and record-keeping became necessary for growing populations. Given that farming was uh, cyclical, uh, farmers would need to deposit their grain in the temples of Mesopotamia and other centres which recorded the deposit on clay tablets and gave the farmer a receipt in the form of a clay token which they could then use to pay fees or other debts to the temples. So not just the beginning of uh, money, actually it's the beginning of accountancy and beginning of record keeping was incredibly important. Similarly, whilst farmers waited for the harvest, they needed to buy things that they could not pay for immediately. And hence, this is the beginning of debt and credit was introduced and a need to record and track it arose. So now we're seeing the emergence of time as a link with money as well. So since the bulk of deposits in the temple were of the main staple based upon barley, a fixed quantity of barley became used to uh, as, a, as a unit of account, and this was known as the shekel. The temple then went on to develop fixed exchange rates between barley and copper or silver and other important commodities, which enabled payment using any of them. So again, the development of a form of exchange of currencies uh, not so much foreign exchange, but exchange between different commodities. So this Mesopotamian shekel, the first form of currency, first known form of currency, emerged nearly 5,000 years ago to satisfy the needs of the farming community. So this is the link between community, between money, between currency and agriculture. Very, very important. And these ancient kingdoms in Sumer, Egypt, Babylon, India and China were where currency was deposited in temples and palaces and you had this idea of a commodity warehouse which therefore issued certificates of deposit as evidence of claim uh, against something known as a representative money. And ultimately, this is really the birth of a banking system as well, as you can see. So you can see the usefulness of crops and development of money and barter in exchange. And the same applied to, obviously, uh, animals as well. Eurasia also played a very important role in the domestication of animals in relation to security, transportation, food, drink and warfare. Thus, the dog was domesticated in China over 15,000 years ago. Goats, sheep and cattle were domesticated from 10,000 to 8,000 BC in Southwest Asia. The donkey was domesticated in Egypt around 5000 BC. Camels were domesticated in Arabia around 4000 BC. And horses were domesticated around 3500 BC in the western Eurasian steppes. All these animals were invaluable to each family, each village, um, and were crucial for the economic development and prosperity of an area or a nation. The importance and value of some animals became so high that they became part of worship and were even seen to be sacred in some cultures. In many uh, Middle Eastern cultures, for example, the bull became sacred and elevated to the level of deity. Even the Israelites, whilst they had been under Egyptian slavery, came to see the bull as sacred, much to the annoyance of Moses, salam, as noted in Exodus um, chapter 32, verse 4, and the Holy Quran as well in Surah Al-Baqarah, uh, as well as we noted. In Hindu religion and culture, thousands of years ago, the cow came to be seen as um, sacred. And even to this day, 
it is seen as uh, uh, sacred. Uh, Yusuf, uh, just take us through that because it's amazing how long it's lasted uh, yeah, abs- in its importance. Uh, absolutely, and you know, several scholars explain the veneration of the cows among Hindus and in economic terms. So, including the importance of dairy in the diet, the use of the cow dung as fuel and fertilizer, and the importance of the cattle. Um, have historically played in agriculture. So ancient texts such as the Rig Veda uh, Puranas highlight the importance of the cattle. In the Bhagavata Gita, um, you know, Krishna and his Yadav kingsmen are associated with the cows, adding to the cows endearment. So another animal that was greatly admired and worshipped by many ancient Indo-European cultures was the horse. Human love for the horses went so deeply that they became part our, our myths and legends, there is no surprise given that for at least 5,000 years, the horse played a key role in Eurasia's development, offering unequivalent uh, transport services, horsepower for agriculture, rapid communications and the capacity to govern and conquer large areas. The horse proved to be of immense value to nations in Eurasia, giving rise to the first empires, regions of the world that lacked horsepower, fell far behind those that had it and typically ended up being conquered by warriors on horseback. The horse was also adopted by the far more populous agricultural societies after their early and often brutal encounters with the peoples of the steppers. The horse became a mainstay of farming, transport and for uh, war for early empires of the Mesopotamia, Egypt, Persia and later for the vast land of empires of Alexander the Great and Rome as well as the Chinese and Indian empires. The horse was a highly valued asset, as a land-based empires of the classical age would have been impossible, but for military might of the horse. So during this early period of human development, as the size of the clans and villages grew, trade involved exchange through bartering of animals and crops. Early bartering um, arrangements, however, did not provide the transferability and divisibility that makes trading efficient. For instance, if someone has a cows but needs bananas, they must find someone who not only has bananas, but also the desire to keep a cow or have some meat. One may find someone who has the need for a cow or meat, but he can only offer potatoes, not bananas. To get meat, that person must find someone who has bananas and wants potatoes and so on. But that is not where the problems end. Even if the person finds with whom to trade meat for bananas, they may not consider a bunch of the bananas to be worth a whole cow. And this was the dilemma early on. Uh, as mentioned earlier, the best way to get around this problem was to be able to exchange or sell your item or goods for a commodity that was valuable, durable, portable, and that could easily be stored. Now, examples of commodities that have been used as medium of exchange include barley, as we mentioned earlier, salt, shells, and metals like copper, lead, silver, and gold. Possessing generally accepted values, these commodities were used to buy and sell other things, as these commodities were used for the trade term commodity money, and that came to be defined as an important term. So let's move now to money uh, in the Bronze and uh, Iron Age, because that was such an important stage. The Neolithic Age gave way to the Metal Age generally, and there we talk talk about the Bronze and uh, Iron Ages as well. And metals like copper, iron, lead, silver and gold um, became important. These were known to some of the oldest civilizations on record. 
The discovery and use of copper, for example, dates to 9000 BC in the Middle East. Um, a copper pendant was found in northern Iraq that dates to apparently 8700 BC. Uh, so, uh, Amir, uh, the metals played a big shift, really, in part. So, absolutely. And because of this idea of durability of a commodity, you know, we have to understand why metals were very important. And as you know, the word salary comes from, some of you may know, the word salary comes from a periodic provision of salt, which was in Roman Empire. But of course, you can't pay somebody in salt, right? So you have to give them something of monetary value, which is more durable. So hence metals and coins. And Adam Smith, um, regarded as, of course, by many as the father of modern economics, uh, the author of The Wealth of Nations, explained the benefit of metals uh, in ancient trade as a durable commodity. So he writes, and I'll give you a few few lines from his book, metals can not only be kept with a little loss as any other commodity, but they can be likewise, without any loss, be divided into any number of parts, as by fusion those parts can, can be reunited again, a quality which no other equally durable commodity possesses, and which more than any other quality renders them fit to be instruments of cer- uh, commerce and circulation. And any man who wants to buy salt, for example, had nothing but cattle to give in exchange for it. They must have been obliged to buy salt at the value of a whole ox or a sheep or so on and so on. And I won't go on any further with that. But as you can see, you know, durability of a, of a commodity is very, very important. Hence, this is why uh, metals have the additional benefit that you can also transport them uh, as well as them being durable from one place to another and they can last for a long time. So going, getting away from very finite resources which may have elements of decay or, or may not be so durable is really important and can be divided easily. So initially, bars of gold or other metals were used uh, and as these were quite bulky, uh, lighter ornaments were used as currency later on. And some of you may know the idea of something known as the gold standard. So you can't carry around with you bars of gold or copper. You have to make division. So gold and silver may have been common enough for the rich and powerful, of course. But if there was one pure metal that ordinary people in the ancient world could get their hands on, it was actually copper. And copper is a very widely accessible uh, metal is still very valuable now in its uh, elemental and refined forms, and it can be melted at low temperature. Uh, so smelting copper requires a higher temperature uh, of around 1200 degrees centigrade, uh, but these temperatures uh, were hotter than campfires and therefore required new methods of heating which emerged later on. So technology has a very important factor here, a very important part to play in metals and in coinage. So with copper being soft and malleable, it's an ideal material. It was an ideal material to manufacture uh, in terms of decorative luxury goods. And so the Copper Age began, which was around about 4000 BCE in the Common Era. Now, as we covered in our previous series on the Middle East in relation to Egypt and the Near East, the Amarna Letters, a body of 14th century BCE correspondence exchanged between the rulers of the ancient Near East and Egypt, show that copper was traded between Egypt and Assyria, Babylon and the Hittite Empire in the 14th century BCE. Copper was valued as a decorative material and used as a currency. The Phoenicians, 
um, shipped copper, and they were based around what we call Syria uh, and Lebanon, etc. The Phoenicians shipped copper around the Mediterranean, and certain hot spots of metallurgy sprang up where it was worked, stored, and passed on. One such center was Bahrain, which passed on copper from Mesopotamia to the Harappan culture of the Indus Valley in India and Pakistan. Copper was yet to be put to a much greater use, and this required the smelting of copper with tin which had the melting point of 250 degrees centigrade to give a much tougher alloy called bronze. The Bronze Age arrived in the Near East and Western Asia around 3300 BCE and the Bronze Age period lasted from 3300 BCE to around uh, 1200 BCE and is the second principal period of the three ages of human development which are the Stone Age, the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. So, Yusuf, take us through the Bronze Age and its importance. Yeah, so the Bronze Age was marked by the rise of states or kingdoms, large-scale societies joined under a central government by a powerful ruler. Different human societies entered the Bronze Age at different times. Bronze Age states interacted with each other through trade, warfare, migration and the spread of ideas. Prominent Bronze Age kingdoms included Sumer, Assyria and Babylonia in Mesopotamia and ancient Egypt. In China, Bronze Age civilizations arose around the Yellow River during the Shang Dynasty, that was between 1600 to 1046 BC, and the Zhao Dynasty, 1046 to 256 BC. Civilizations in the Aegean began working with bronze before 3000 BC. The Minoans of the island of Crete considered the first advanced um, civilizations in Europe. The Minons were traders who exported timber, olive oil, wine and dye to nearby Egypt, Syria, Cyprus and the Greek mainland. They imported metals and other raw materials included copper, tin, ivory and precious stones. Around 1600 BC, the Mycenaean um, civilization rose on the Greek mainland and their culture flourished during, during the late Bronze Age. The power and myths of the Mycenaean civilization have been passed down to us by Homer in his classics, the De Iliad and Odyssey. Odyssey. Mm. Major Mycenaean power centers included Mycenae, Tibur, Spartan, Athens. While bronze was put to great use by the Near East empires, the scarcity of tin deposits in the Fertile Crescent region placed many restraints on them. Tin mines were well established in parts of Western Europe, Germany, Iberia, but the tin had to be transported long distances to the Near East. Other tin arrived from mines in Central Asia along the Silk Road. The Bronze Age ended around 1200 BC uh, when humans began to forge an even stronger metal, iron. So I'm going to take us through this important development because there was a major transformation on the global front. So this is really a story about technology as well. So as we've heard, uh, Stone Age, Bronze Age, and now comes along the Iron Age. And the Iron Age was a period in human history that started between 1200 BC and 600 BC. And as we know, uh, iron is a a very uh, strong uh, metal, is superior to bronze in many ways, and notably in strength per unit weight. And iron is also more plentiful than tin that occurs naturally as, as, as iron or ferrite, or as it's known. And humans have smelted iron um, or have been or, or did sporadically smelt iron throughout the Bronze Age, uh, but it wasn't as widespread as bronze. And uh, But it did eventually become 
uh, more widespread much later on because its melting point was 500 degrees higher than that of copper. And the vast amount of energy needed to melt iron uh, at uh, 1530 degrees centigrade using bellows uh, meant that it drastically limited the large-scale production of iron weapons and other products. So early iron tools and weapons weren't as hard or as durable as their Bronze Age counterparts. However, when iron was heated together with carbon, well, that was a game changer because it made a much harder metal that we now know as steel. Iron plus carbon equals steel. And weapons that were made from steel were sharper and stronger than earlier bronze weapons, and they were put to good use by the earliest innovators. So again, innovation is at the heart of human endeavor, as we know. And central to that was civilization and societies. So the Hittites, who lived during the Bronze Age in what is now modern-day Turkey, may have been the first to make steel. However, it was the Persians that rose to become the greatest power of the early Iron Age, and they were really foremost in arming themselves with steel weapons, uh, tough metal, uh, which was even now, as well as at that time, with the ability to fight on horseback. The Persians rapidly conquered the Middle Eastern empires. So again, combination of uh, technology, of metals, of even animals, horses, that connection with horses didn't go away. The Persians may have been the first civilization, therefore, to develop an armoured cavalry in which horses and riders were completely covered in steel armour. And the Achaemenid Empire, founded by Cyrus the Great in 550 BC, became the largest empire of the time, stretching from the Balkans of East Europe to the Indus Valley in India. And in previous uh, VOI, Voice of Islam uh, history programs, we've covered some of these elements uh, where we've also found, and we can make the link now, so if you have plentiful deposits of iron and you have a technique for making weapons from it, all you need to do is to cut off the roots to the tin deposits of your neighbors who rely on bronze and hey presto, you become the dominant power. That's history, right? Yeah, this, this, is, is, probably a good, this is probably a good place to stop because then we move on to the value of precious metals gold, silver, etc. But uh, I think it gives listeners a feel for how important the metals in both currency and in terms of power projection uh, they were. So do give us your feedback on our programs. Our uh, Twitter handle is at VI Living History and do visit our website as well www.voiceofislam.co.uk and look at SoundCloud programs under Living history. We'll see you shortly, inshallah. Asalaamu Alaikum and welcome back to the second part of uh, uh, this series on the role of uh, crops and animals leading to uh, coins. In the first part of this program, we talked about uh, this sort of migration from, you know, using crops, animals that were valuable, that attached uh, sort of exchange for money and trade, etc., moving on to the metals and the Copper Age, the Bronze Age, and then Iron Age with production of steel and the power, really, uh, that was given in particular to the Achaemenid Empire of Cyrus the Great and prior to that, the Hittites. So whilst metals like copper and iron were quite widely available and particularly useful in developing weapons and decorative items, it was silver and gold that came to hold great value in the eyes of most cultures. Although gold was relatively rare, silver was widely available and it had a much greater value and aesthetic appeal than copper in many ancient cultures where it was used to make jewellery, tableware, figurines and ritual objects. Rough-cut pieces known as hack silver 
could also be used widely in trade or to store large quantities of wealth. Easily mined, workable, reusable and brilliantly shiny silver was one of the few truly international commodities which both connected and divided the ancient world. So, Yusuf, take us through the great use of uh, silver. Yeah, in uh, Mesopotamia, silver was used from the 4th millennium BCE. With no deposits in the area, silver was imported from Anatolia, Armenia and Iran. Cities like Ugarit, Sumer and Babylon used silver as a standard value measure with workers. For example, been paid in a specific weight of silver or its equivalent value in cereals. The Egyptians also valued silver, and whilst they had plentiful supply of local gold, they had very limited indigenous sources of silver, so so much of it had to be acquired to trade. In ancient Egypt, silver was much closer in value to gold compared to ancient cultures, though we may not think of that now in terms of the value of gold. One to two instead of the more typical one in thirteen. There were periods when it was considered even more valuable. From all the metals available to the Sumerians of Mesopotamia, the most useful commodity to satisfy all the functions of money was silver. Shortly after they developed writing 3300 BC, the Sumerians recorded the use of silver as the standard value 3100 to 2500 BC along with barley. Sometime before 2500 BC, the silver shekel became their standard currency, with tablets recording the price of timber, grains, salaries, slaves, etc. in shekels. So long before coins came along, silver in the form of ingots and rough-cut pieces was a common method of payment for traders and states alike. This latter form, known as hack silver or hack silver, was also used as a method to store wealth. This form of silver was weighed each time a transaction was made, which often resulted in pieces being cut again and again to meet the exact weight required. And as a result, the pieces became even smaller. The practice was common in the Near East, Egypt and the ancient Western Mediterranean up to the 4th century BCE when coinage largely replaced it. Hack silver and silver ingots of no particular standardised weight were used in ancient India from the 8th to the 7th century BCE. Small bent bars and typical and judging by their differing weights, smaller pieces were probably cut from them before coinage became common. You know, whilst in our programs we talk a lot about the Egyptians and uh, um, the Babylonians and uh, the Persians as well. The Phoenicians who inhabited the sort of area around the Levant, uh, again Lebanon, Syria, etc., were perhaps the greatest traders of them all of that time. And they spread the use of silver even further across the ancient Mediterranean and channeled tons of it to Western Asia, especially Assyria, uh, mostly in the form of bullion, ingots or discs and rings. The Phoenicians acquired such quantities that they earned an admonishing reference in the Bible. And I quote from Zechariah uh, chapter 9, verse 2 to 3, and it says in the Bible, Tyre heaped up silver. <laughs> To guarantee the weight and value of bars was stamped with official hallmarks. A Phoenician talent of silver weighed around 30 kilos and was worth 300 shekels. One silver shekel was worth 300 copper shekels and 227 shekels of tin. 
Gold was worth four times more than silver. Supply and demand affected the value of commodities just as they do today, and the oversupply of silver to the Near East caused a crash in the value of silver by the 6th century BCE. The classical Athens, Carthage and Rome benefited immensely from a ready supply of silver through the Phoenician trades. Spanish and Sardinian silver mines were essential for Carthage and for Rome to fund their wars. The Romans worked some 40,000 slaves in the silver mines of Spain, and as the empire expanded, silver was extracted from Britain, Germany and Balkans, and thus you can see why they wanted to expand and rule these lands. So again, Yusuf, also touch on the Americas, because often we leave them out Yeah, so in the Americas, while the ancient had plenty of gold, they had no silver of their own to speak. Uh, But it was found in abundance further south in the empires of the Incas and their predecessors. For the Inca, just as gold was considered the sweat of the sun, silver was thought as the tears of the moon. The rarity and prestige of the metal meant that it was restricted to use by the nobility. Commoners had to make do with goods made from copper or bronze. For millennia, it was also silver, not gold, which was the real basis of domestic economies. The foundation for most money of account systems, for payment of wages and salaries, and for most local retail trade. Silver was far more widespread than gold as a monetary standard worldwide, from the Sumerians in 3000 BC until 1873. So we move to the next most important precious metal, and that was gold, which remains to the day, really. The magic and great appeal of gold throughout the ages is appropriately described by the chemical symbol for gold, AU, which is derived from the Latin aurum, meaning shining dawn. Gold as a precious metal has been used since antiquity in the production of jewellery, coinage, sculpture, vessels and as a decoration for buildings, monuments and statues. Since gold does not corrode, it became a symbol of immortality and power in many ancient cultures. Its rarity and aesthetic qualities made it an ideal material for ruling classes to demonstrate their power and position. Gold was probably the first found at surface level near rivers in different parts of the world. Traces of gold have been found in Spanish caves dating back to around 40,000 BC. Moving on, gold was then mined underground from 2000 BC by the Egyptians and later by many other civilizations. Easily worked and mixed with other metals such as silver and copper to increase its strength and change its color, Gold was used for a wide range of purposes. So quite an amazing precious metal. Uh, Amir, uh, take us through its early use then by the civilizations. Of course. And so uh, most ancient ancient cultures uh, had gold uh, or viewed gold uh, as a very popular and valuable commodity and something of, of, of high and extreme worth. And it was very popular in jewellery and art because of this value. It's uh, primarily its aesthetic qualities, again, that vision of dawn coming from the sun. And again, many of the the societies and communities had uh, views on or beliefs relating to the sun and in in fact, the galaxy above. Electrum, which was the natural alloy of gold and silver, was used in jewellery by the Egyptians from around 5000 BCE. And gold jewellery was worn by both men and women in the Sumerian civilization around 3000 BCE. And gold chains were first produced 
in the city of Ur, which is now in present day in uh, Iraq. Uh, so again, in the Levant, that area of, of the world, as well as in other parts of the world, gold was a very valuable commodity. Uh, coming a bit closer to the to the Europe, the Minoan civilization in Crete in the early second millennium BC made a vast array of jewelry items using extensive range of techniques. And gold jewelry took the form of necklaces, bracelets, earrings, rings, etc., etc. Uh, and the desire to crave for and accumulate gold accordingly can turn into and did turn into a curse, as was the case of King Midas of Phrygia. And again, King Midas, all that touches. Uh, he touched turn into gold, as the saying goes. Um, king Midas was a king of uh, Phrygia, which was in Anatolia, or ancient uh, Turkey, present-day Turkey. And according to Greek legend, Dionysus, the Greek god of winemaking and fertility, offered King Midas a reward and asked him to make a wish. Uh, and this is the legend. King Midas then wished that he could turn anything he touched into gold, and this became uh, a curse where his wish was granted uh, but of course, although he was very pleased with his new power, he then realized that even the food he touched turned into gold, and so he died of starvation, unable to eat anything. Therefore, the reason that gold and silver became the optimum form of money is because of their properties and this scarcity, value, and great awe and wonder of um, of these metals, which include in fact, these, these, other these values, well. Amir, are so important for listeners because even the current debate going on with currency and devaluation. Everybody, you go to YouTube and everybody's talking about it. So you go through these particular things that are important. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and again, we can even see this in the parallels with uh, digital currencies or mm. cryptocurrencies. Uh, let's make it a bit more modern day. But <laughs> yeah. just think That's about what I was some, saying. These there's are these a big things. debate going absolutely. on. Yeah, but, yeah. So any currency really needs to have an easy medium of exchange. Gold and silver store a large amount of value, of course. Uh, as in a fixed amount. The unit of account also is important. So for gold and silver, a fixed weight had the same value uh, globally, whether you're in Egypt, China, Europe, anywhere, and especially pure gold. Durability, we mentioned this already. You can't carry around bags of salt, but can, you can carry around coins of gold. Uh, and that same gold that you might have is still with us today. Uh, you know, Egyptians were using it to trade 5,000 years ago, but it's still with us today as a, as a metal. It doesn't corrode, and it's clearly uh, durable. It can be divisible. You can break it up into pieces. You heard from uh, Yusuf Saab about the, uh, the, the hack silver, but you can do the same with gold. It's a bit more malleable, so you can do that. You can take it with you. Now, as you've heard, some of these uh, pieces of metal could be fashioned into ingots or rings, and therefore you can put it with you as, uh, as, ne- as a necklace or you can put it in a, in a, in a pouch. Um, but you can't do the same, obviously, with other commodities. Oil, salt, I've already mentioned. Um, there's this word, which is a strange word, which is called f- uh, fungibility or f- something that's fungible. That's the hardest one to understand. <laughs> that's the difficult one. <laughs> so let me explain that. So pure gold and silver are the same wherever you find it on the planet. And this is what fungible, something that is fungible means. It's, it's the same. It's ubiquitous. It can easily be, is easily be seen and found and obtained. That's what fungible means. That's really important for a currency and to support trade rather. And the final thing is the storage of value. Now, if you have something like gold and silver, they are limited in quantity. They are precious. This is why we call them precious metals. So governments cannot make or print gold 
uh, as you can do with uh, what might you might what is called as the fiat currencies, such as uh, the dollar, the pound, euro, even. And so, therefore, even now, these precious metals, because of their limited quantity, are very precious, and therefore their store of value still remains. So, even though gold and silver had been around for many thousands of years um, early on for human civilization. The pieces of gold and silver that ancient civilizations were using were odd sizes and weights and often odd purities. These pieces were not interchangeable because of this variation in size and shape and uh, etc. Um, where each piece or unit was same as the next. This meant that nothing really had a set price up to this point. Fixed price coins had not been introduced yet thus making trade quite difficult. It was still a guessing game when it came to the exchange of particular items. Trading with odd-shaped metal ornaments made of copper or silver proved to be restrictive, and even the bars of silver or gold were difficult to carry from one destination to another. Most historians agree that it was around 600 BC that gold and silver were melted into what we call coins of equal weight and size in Lydia, a region in western Anatolia or Asia Minor, which, as I mentioned, was part of modern-day Turkey. Although there are some claims that China may have developed coins of copper as early as 900 BCE, this has yet to be acknowledged by the wider groups of researchers and historians, it is believed that the various kingdoms of India also started using coins by the 5th century BCE. So the first coins then were made of electrum, a naturally occurring alloy of gold and silver. These coins were issued by King Aliates of Lydia, who died in 560 BCE, um, for which reason this king is sometimes mentioned as the originator of coinage. They were stamped with a design by the state as a mark of their authenticity and weight. These were lighter and rounded and much easier to carry. However, the first pure gold coins with stamped images are credited to the successor of Elaites, King Crossos of Lydia, who was 560-546 BCE, and a contemporary um, gold refinery has been excavated at the capital Sardis to confirm this. So coins were also introduced to India, China and the Mediterranean shortly afterwards. The Mycenaean civilization, the old Greeks, also widely used gold coins, as did the later Greek and Roman empires, although silver was the more usual material used because of its wider availability. The development of coins made them interchangeable, an important factor as we mentioned earlier. And at that point, they became very useful as a unit of account and measurement. You could price a good or a service based on a number of gold or silver coins. Most importantly, it was always the same for anybody who came for that good or service. With the introduction of gold coins and other precious metals, Lydia's King Crossus had amassed a large amount of wealth through trade and discovery of gold and silver deposits. In Greek and Persian cultures, the name of Crossus became synonymous for a wealthy man. 
Unfortunately, Croesus miscalculated his power and made the mistake of going on the offensive against one of the greatest kings of all time, the Persian king Cyrus, who founded the Achaemenid Empire in 539 BC. Croesus was defeated and Cyrus took control of Lydia and, of course, all the coins uh, um, that were there. Um, Yusuf, uh, again, take us through this um, period uh, with uh, uh, Cyrus uh, uh, as well. Yeah, so Cyrus the Great is regarded as one of the most influential figures in history, an enlightened ruler and a brilliant general, created the largest empire known to man at that time. Cyrus was magnanimous toward captured enemies and freed peoples and is most famous for freeing the Jews held at Babylon and allowing them to return to Jerusalem. According to Jewish tradition, Cyrus also gave back to the Jews the artifacts that Nebuchadnezzar uh, looted from their Nebuchadnezzar. temple. Nebuchadnezzar had looted, name to say yeah, had looted from their temple. Moreover, he gave the Jews permission to rebuild sacred temple in Jerusalem and provided funds for its reconstruction. The Persians, for obvious reasons, revered Cyrus the Great and referred to him as the father of the nation. The conquered Babylonians called him the liberator, and even the Greeks called him the lawgiver. The Bible called him the anointed of the Lord for his role in getting the Jews released from the captivity in Babylon. The great chronicler Xenophon, looking back from a distance of several generations, wrote, quote, Cyrus did indeed eclipse all other monarchs before or since. The Persians ruled with a light touch compared to many previous conquerors, ensuring freedom of religion. The conquered people were allowed to keep their kings and elites as long as they pledged allegiance to the Persian king and paid their taxes, which is why the Persian king was known as a king of kings. So Amir, uh, again, this was such an important phase in terms of uh, uh, the spread of coinage and uh, use, uh, but uh, clearly... um, Lydia was not able to share its uh, wealth. It was Cyrus and his empire uh, that used the coins to great advantage. Absolutely. So again, here this is the learning we get from history. So with the conquest of Lydia and the adoption of Lydian coinage, the nascent uh, Achaemenid Empire obtained access to the most modern coinage of its time and the economic power that goes with it. So Cyrus and therefore the Persian Empire adopted Lydia's lion and bull Croesid coinage and other coins were later minted by the Persian Empire. So again, history shows us that when one society or nation doesn't do so well, another one takes its place and then uh, takes things forward. And so the coinage in the Achaemenid Empire started to, first of all, adopt, but then move away from simply copying the previous coinage from the Lydian Empire. And this introduced changes uh, with the reign of Darius I, who ruled between 522 and 486 BC, where under Darius, the minting of uh, Croesids and Sardis was progressively replaced by the minting of uh, Darics and Sigloi. These are co- types of coin with the image of the Persian king in place of the lion and the bull design. So we're starting to see now the development of coinage based upon authority, sovereignty. This is where the idea of sovereignty comes from. And The gold used in the direct terms became an international currency which was found throughout the ancient world and the circulation therefore of the silver sigloi or the coinage that was called sigloi 
remained very much limited to Asia Minor, where the uh, the rate of exchange was one Daric to 20 Siglos. So, uh, amazing story, really, of uh, uh, sort of transition and how, because the Persian Empire became one of the biggest empires of time, but to make that happen, it was the gold and the coinage and exchange and trade and everything, so, so important. So the Achaemenid Empire is remembered for imposing a successful model of centralized bureaucratic administration via the use of satraps or viceroys ruling on behalf of the king. Other notable features for which it was known included its multicultural policy, building infrastructure such as road systems and a postal system, the use of an official language across its territories and the development of civil services, including its possessions, of large professional army. Slavery was forbidden according to the straight religion Zoroastrianism and it was unheard of in the Persian Empire, which is amazing because most ancient empires ran on slavery, which is something we'll come to uh, later on. The empire's successes inspired the usage of um, similar systems in later empires. Uh, so, Yusuf? Uh, yeah, under the Achaemenids, uh, trade was extensive and there was efficient infrastructure that facilitated the exchange of commodities in the far reaches of the empire. Tariffs on trade, along with agriculture and tribute, were major sources of revenue for the empire. Darius also introduced a regulated and sustainable tax system that was precisely tailored to each satrapy based on their supposed productivity and their economic potential. For instance, Babylon was assessed for the highest amount and for a startling a mixture of commodities, 1,000 silver talents, four-month supply of food uh, for the army. India was clearly already fabled for its gold. Egypt was known for the wealth of its crops. It was to be the granary of the Persian Empire as latter of Rome's and was required to provide 120,000 measures of grain in addition to 700 talents of silver. It's a great legacy, Amir, uh, from the Achaemenid uh, Empire, you know, with all these roads and connections. And even to this day, even in the United States, people go on about how great that system and that king in particular, Silas, was. So just tell us a little bit more before coming to the conclusion of the program. So if you have trade and if you have a means of identifying value, your society is going to grow. And this is the exact example that we've got here. So these satrapies or vice-regent-controlled areas uh, were very, very powerful, as you can see, because they were backed by trade. And this is now part of our modern world. And these satrapies were linked by transport route. They were linked by a 2,500-kilometer highway, which was the most, one of the most impressive uh, stretches of road uh, in, in the ancient world. And this was known as the Royal Road, which stretched from Susa to Sardis, and it was built under command of Darius I, uh, one, of the, one of the great Persian emperors. And because of this transport network, it featured stations and caravanserais at specific intervals, which supported trade along that route. And the relays of mounted couriers could reach the remotest of areas within 15 days. Very, very efficient trade route, very efficient transport communication route. Herodotus um, a Greek historian observes that there is nothing in the world that travels faster than these Persian couriers. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor gloom of night stays these courageous couriers from the swift completion of their appointed rounds, all because of transport, all because of effectively money and trade, which was supporting it. 
and another highway of commerce was the Great Khorasan Road, an informal mercantile route that originated in the fertile lowlands of Mesopotamia and snaked through the Zagros Highlands, through the Iranian Plateau, Afghanistan, and so on and so forth, uh, encompassing Samarkand, Merv, Farhana. And this route was greatly rehabilitated and formalized during the Abbasid Caliphate, during which it developed into a major component of what we, we now understand to be the Silk Road. So I think um, in summary then for this program, real money for as long as mankind can remember has always been linked to gold and silver. The reasons why gold and silver became a store of value, especially gold, is because their availability was and is limited. They were relatively scarce. On the other hand, the supply of copper was much more plentiful. With the introduction of coinage, money soon became an instrument of political control. Taxes could easily be extracted to support the elite, to fund public projects and to raise large armies to fight wars. Political leaders could control the production of coins from mining, smelting, milting, as well as their circulation and use. Not very different to the current day and age. And yet, these empires of antiquity merely set the stage for even larger and more impressive empires that would arise across the world, as we will discuss in part two. So hopefully, uh, listeners have uh, found this introduction valuable, interesting. Um, please do give us your feedback at our Twitter uh, handle, which is at uh, VI Living History. And also visit the website www.voiceofislam.co.uk. And in the program section, you'll see Living History programs on SoundCloud. Listen to them at your own leisure. Great deal of information on all sorts of subjects. So, Amir, Yusuf, thank you for your contributions for today. So, until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.